they are doing a lot to try and fix some of these problems. And so we want to, we want to encourage people to go work for these companies, to make them better, to get on the inside so that you can fix some of the, the, the problems caused by these technologies or you know, build a technology that makes the, the, the current technology obsolete. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Hello, and welcome to Writers in Tech podcast. I hope you're having a really safe time right now and that you're happy. I want to share with you today an episode with Nireyal, best-selling author. It's an episode that we recorded a few months ago, but it's only published now. Very excited for this episode. We've talked about a lot of ethical design practices. We talked about his books, Hooked, and uh, how to create uh, digital products that basically change your habits. And we talked about the book Indestructible, which is about uh, staying focused and how not to let digital products to take your attention away. So there is a really nice spectrum here that we talked about the perspective of the designer and the writer and the future of UX writing and about how to promote ethical design in your organization and basically how can we change the world and how can we create impact on billions and billions of lives using uh, product design and writing conversational interfaces. It was fascinating. So enjoy. Don't forget to follow our newsletter at uxwritinghub.com. We also offer a free UX writing course over there. Uh, So you might want to check it out. That's about it. Enjoy. How are things? I'm good. How are you? Great, great. Uh, you, where sir. are you based, by the way? I'm uh, in Israel at the moment. Oh, okay, great. So it's, uh, what time is it now in Israel? Like 8 p.m. or so? Right now it's 7.30, yeah. 7.30, okay. Cool. Well, it's good to t- talk with you. I'm excited for the interview. Thank you so much for, uh, for uh, doing this, you know. I'm, uh, I'm a fan for years now. Thank you. And, I appreciate it. Uh, the first UX book I ever got was uh, Hooked. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, but thank it, you for the compliment. It's very kind of you to say. Yeah, you know, I've been in an event in Israel called the UXI Live, I think was the name. Mm-hmm. And uh, I won a competition. And in that competition, I won the book uh, uh, Hooked. Uh, so I have a hard copy of it at home and, you know. This is the, I, I just did a transition back then from graphic design to UX design. So it helped me to understand, the, you know, uh, more about UX design. Oh, that's awesome. I'm so glad to hear it. Well, that's, that, that makes me feel great that uh, it inspired you to pursue your interest. It is. And, you know, I just finished your second book. Oh, good. So I'm very excited to speak with you today. So, intro. so today we have Nireyal, the author of uh, Hooked. And in this, you know, I always have problems to and, uh, pronounce the name. So <laughs> No problem. Indistractable. Indestructible. Yeah, most people who interview me have a problem pronouncing my last name. You don't have that problem. No. Um, <laughs> you know, my brother's name is Eyal. So okay, be... you know exactly how to pronounce it. You can probably pronounce it better than I can. Eyal. Yeah, you are originally are you from Israel? No. Yeah, I was born in Israel, but I left when I was three years old. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm much more American now. Got it. And where are you from? I grew up in near Orlando, a suburb of Orlando. Nice. So I would love to learn more about your background and how did you get to the point that you wrote the book uh, sure yeah so for me it really started um, I was in the gaming and advertising industry I started a company while I was um, studying at Stanford and uh, at that intersection of these two industries I had this really wonderful vantage point to to learn about how different companies utilize these principles of behavioral design 
to get users to do certain things. And so that was really fascinating to me and I wanted to learn more. And so I, the, the idea here was that, you know, these secrets shouldn't be locked up in the gaming companies. At the time, this was back in 2007. And um, at the time, it was really gaming companies who were using these techniques. And then we saw social media companies using these techniques. And then of course, Facebook exploded and, and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack. And we've, we've seen these tools applied in all kinds of various environments. And so my idea was, well, why can't we use those same techniques that get people hooked to video games or social media, what if we could use those same exact techniques to get people hooked to all kinds of healthy behavior like exercise and education and saving money and connecting with loved ones? And thankfully, that's exactly what happened uh, over the past five years. Uh, people have, have used the book in every conceivable industry. Uh, I've worked with people in, in all sorts of different uh, um, behavioral problems. And the, the key goal, I think, has really borne out that we can absolutely use behavioral design to help people build healthy habits in their life. And I'm really proud of that. I really like the fact that you are talking about taking this uh, ability to, to use the hooked model to use it for good, you know, to help people with right. their lives. And I feel like there is uh, apps today that definitely dedicated to help us with our health. Like my personal favorite is um, Headspace. Yeah. On the contrary, I must say that there are also uh, social media platforms that can see people are addicted to them. And there is two sides for the coin here. And right. I, and, that, I and that's exactly to- why I, that's why I wrote the second book <laughs> was mm-hmm. exactly for this reason that, you know, when you understand how behavioral design works, uh, you can also understand the Achilles heel of what to do about it. And I think that's, that's what, you know, given my background in the field, I can, I think I have a very good vantage point to explain how these products work and how we can use them to our advantage and make sure that we get the best out of these technologies without letting them get the best of us. That's amazing. So I would love to know a little bit about Brinks that will help us to stay focused. And I myself, I'm addicted to social media, to Facebook. I run my businesses through social media. So I really feel like sometimes I can uh, lose attention. And instead of managing my time, I kind of lose time somehow. And I love the fact that in the book, you said that, you know, it's okay sometimes to use social media for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, as long as you control your time, as long as you are well aware to the fact that you're going to use social media right now for 15 minutes and not more than that. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a lot to this, uh, the, to the techniques I talk about in the book. Um, the, the key principle is to understand what is the difference between traction and distraction. That uh, if we want to understand what distraction is, we have to understand what is the opposite of distraction. And so if you think in your own mind, you know, what, what would most people think if, they, if you ask them what's the opposite of distraction? Most people will say the opposite of distraction is focus, but I don't agree that the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That in fact, both words come from the same Latin root, uh, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. Now, the opposite of attraction is distraction, as we mentioned. So distraction is anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that, that is not what you intended to do with your time. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be distraction. So one of the, the most pernicious forms is, you know, you sit down at your desk and you say, I'm going to work on that big project. Here I go. I'm going to stop procrastinating. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. But let me just check email first. Or let me do that thing that I've been procrastinating on. Or let me, let me do that easy thing on my to-do list, right? That I can get a quick hit, right? That feels good. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, that's just as much of a pernicious form of distraction as playing video games. Because if it's not what you plan to do with your time, 
it is a distraction. And it's even worse, I think. You know, if you play video games at work, it's pretty clear you're slacking off. But if you're checking email, you feel busy, you feel productive, but really you are, you are distracted. You're not doing what you intended to do. And the reason this is so dangerous is that it makes us prioritize the urgent at the expense of the important. And so we can never get out from under this, this trick that distraction plays on us. So we have to understand that anything can be a distraction, even the stuff we think is making us productive. And conversely, just as anything can be a distraction, anything can be traction. And so I argue there's nothing wrong with social media. There's nothing wrong with playing video games. There's nothing wrong with enjoying Netflix. As long as you do it on your schedule and according to your values, not the app makers, not someone else's. That I think what we have right now is this, you know, everybody's calling technology addictive. And the fact of the matter is it's, it's, it's not that it's addicting everyone. It addicts some people, but of course, all kinds of things addict some people and don't addict everyone. But it's become very fashionable, I think, today for people to call everything they like a lot addictive. But an addiction is a pathology. And I think it's, it's one, disrespectful for people who actually struggle with the addiction. You know, lots of things addict people but don't addict everyone. Think about alcohol, right? Many of us have a glass of wine with dinner or a pint of beer once in a while. We're not all alcoholics, right? That's crazy to think that it just because alcohol is addictive, which it highly is, doesn't mean everyone gets addicted. And so why do we think that just because some people overuse technology, and, and I do believe have the pathology of addiction, even though it's not in the DSM, it's not an official diagnosis, internet addiction, I, I do think that you know, some people actually do become pathologically addicted to technology. It makes the, 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 the people who have the problem, it, it, um, it minimizes their actual struggle with this pathology. And second, it, it, it medicalizes a normal behavior. That when people say to themselves, oh, I'm addicted, this is something that, that is controlling me, there's a dealer, there's a pusher, there's someone doing this to me, it gives us an out. It lets us believe that it's not our responsibility, that there's not something we can do about it. And in fact, that makes the situation worse. This is called learned helplessness, that when we believe there's nothing we can do about the problem, we don't even try and fix it. And I think that's a really dangerous route that a lot of people are taking right now because it feels really convenient to say, oh, it's the technology doing it to me, as opposed to saying, wait a minute, actually, can I do something about this? Have I even tried to do something about this? <laughs> and it right. turns out for the vast majority of people, they, they haven't even tried. And so when I started doing this research around you know, what's, what, what's really going on here with technology uh, and is it the root cause of our distraction, I learned that one the root cause of our distraction is not even technology, that I tried to get rid of the technology. I did everything that the, that the, the, the experts tell you to do in the so-called books, that you know, the, the so-called experts that uh, it's interesting how few of them actually have social media accounts and yet they tell everyone else to stop using social media. Well, that's really convenient for a professor to say, but you know, many, people, many of our jobs require us to use these technologies. We'd get fired if we stopped using these technologies. But even, even though, I, I did what the books told me. I went on a digital detox and I stopped using the technology. I got a flip phone. I got myself a word processor with no internet connection, no apps. And I still got distracted because I hadn't figured out the root cause of the problem. And so that's really what Indistractable is about. It's about taking personal responsibility and stop blaming the tools of distraction and understand the deeper reason why we get distracted in the first place. Because people have always been distracted by one thing or another. And they always will be unless we understand why we are getting distracted in the first place. I know that there are many 
companies today that fight for our attention, but it is super important to take responsibility because we are going to, we are using those technologies many times when we are bored and waiting for someone and, and it's unintentional. And I think there is definitely something that's creating like more awareness to it, like in your book, could help out to, to people um, that behaving exactly like that. So what would be your tips for being indestructible? Yeah, so the first thing is to understand the, the root cause of the problem. And so what leads us towards either traction or distraction is two things. We have what we call internal triggers or external triggers. Right. External triggers... Yeah, exactly. So the external triggers are all the things in our outside environment, the pings, the dings, the rings, all of the things that can lead us to either traction or distraction. And that's what people tend to blame. They tend to blame my iPhone uh, ring or, or WhatsApp did this, or you know, they blame the external triggers. But it turns out, as, as you mentioned, that the root cause of the problem is not the external triggers, but most distraction, in fact, starts from within. That it's the internal triggers that by and large lead us towards distraction. And what are internal triggers? Internal triggers are these uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. So it's uncertainty, loneliness, stress, anxiety, fatigue. The, this is why we, are, we use distraction to take our minds off of these uncomfortable states. We watch the news so that we can watch someone else's problems as opposed to having to think about our own problems. We check Facebook when we're feeling lonely. We check Google when we're uncertain. When we're bored, we look at sports scores, Reddit, Pinterest. We want to take our mind off of these feelings, and so we use these tools to escape. And, if, and, and so this, the first step has to be to master these internal triggers, to understand what we are trying to escape from, and then have tools in our toolkit, have ways that we can master these internal triggers as opposed to letting them master us. Let's say that, okay, so many of our listeners are um, actually the people that creating those uh, experiences, those interfaces of uh, Reddit, Google, Facebook, and many other platforms. From that angle, from the designer angle, how do you think we should, you know, at the end of the day, we want other people to be... Um, to be happy. I think that uh, happy clients for the long term would be much better clients than pressed clients or clients that are not happy with your service but use it anyway. So yeah. what would be your tips for the designers? Yeah, so I think one of the best rules, so I talked about this in my first book, Hooked. I, I gave uh, this two-part test that you can use today to ask yourself whether it's ethical to apply some of these behavioral design techniques at, 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 uh, in your product. And, and so there's this two-part test where I ask people, and this was, you know, five years ago when I first published the book, I, I always knew that ethics were a concern. This isn't a new, uh, you know, this isn't a new revelation for me. I always, I always knew this would be a concern. I put it in the book the first time. And, and so the two-part test is to, number one, look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? Okay. This isn't something for you to judge other people or for other people to judge you. This is a way for you to ask yourself, is what I'm doing materially improving people's lives? Because look, you know, the fact of the matter is if, if you're spending your life working on a project you're not proud of, that you're going to later regret, then what's the point? I mean, the, the, it, with this kind of economy, you will find you can always find another job, I think. You don't need to do unethical business practices. Uh, it, it, and so it behooves you in order for you not to look back with regret on how you spent your career, ask yourself this first question of, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? That's the first question. Okay. But that's not enough. The second question 
is to ask yourself, am I the user? Okay, why do I ask people to ask themselves the second test? Because do, do you know, you've all the first rule of drug dealing? Uh, no. <laughs> good. Maybe that's a good thing. The first rule of drug dealing is never get high on your own supply. Mm. Okay. Never get high on your own supply. Why? Because, you know, drugs hurt people. Uh, when, and so the idea is if you're a drug dealer, you don't want to take your own drugs because they're, they're not beneficial. They hurt people. Well, I want people to break that rule. I want designers to get high on their own supply. Why? Because if there are any deleterious effects to using your product, you'll be the first to know about it. So that's why you have this two-part test of number one, is what I'm doing materially improving people's lives? And number two, am I the user? Now, if you pass that two-part test, I think a few nice things happen. Number one, that's a good ethical place to be, right? You're what I call a facilitator. A facilitator believes that what they're working on materially improves people's lives and they are the users. So that's one, a good ethical place to be. Two, it puts you in a really good business position because, you know, the hardest part around design is understanding what your user wants. And so I think an underutilized hack is to build a product for yourself. Why? Because you're the user, right? And I know that we learn in design school that we're supposed to be very empathetic and understand our user by, by doing a demographic research and, and uh, uh, really, you know, getting to the heart of their needs. But look, there's, there's a shortcut. <laughs> and the shortcut is be the user, uh, because you have such greater insight into what you actually need to exist. And if you look at the founding of many of the world's biggest, most successful tech companies, all of them started with founders who were just building something that they themselves wanted to see in the world. So that's a good ethical two-part test. The other thing that I came up with after Hooked was published is what I call the regret test. And uh, the reason I came up with the regret test is because the test I put in, in uh, the book Hooked uh, it's called the manipulation matrix. And it's this, you know, you have four categories on whether you say yes or no to the two questions I just asked earlier. Mm -hmm. But that's about how you, what you ask yourself. The problem is what I heard from people is like you know, that, that they would say, look, I know how I pass this two-part test, but some people in my team still want to use unethical applications of behavioral design tactics. What do I do then, right? What, have, what do I do when the boss wants to use a dark pattern that I'm not really into that I think is unethical. What do I do then? And so I went looking around Silicon Valley for you know, what, what kind of tests do people use? And the most obvious was what Google used, which is this test of don't be evil, which is pretty crappy <laughs> because, you know, evil is a subjective term. What, what you might think is evil, maybe I don't think is evil. It's very subjective. So what does that mean? Don't be evil. Even Google doesn't even have that as their official motto anymore. So that's not a good test. Then I came across the golden rule and the golden rule says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But that also doesn't work very well from a design perspective because who says that what I want is what my users want? It actually, as the designer, it doesn't really matter what I want. What if my users want something completely different? So that's not a very good test. Then I met with the lawyers and the lawyers said, look, all you have to do is disclose, right? Just disclose, disclose, disclose. Just tell people what you're going to do and that's it make them sign a terms of service agreement and you're done. You've covered your bases. But of course, that's not a high enough standard because how many of us actually read those terms of service agreements? Almost nobody does. Right. And so that can't be the right bar either. So that's when I came up with the regret test. And the regret test says, not like the golden rule that says do unto users as you would have them do unto you, but instead do unto your users what they would want done to themselves. 
that's a really big difference, right? We want to get into the heads of our users and understand what they themselves would want done to them. Now you say, well, that's how can we possibly do that? That's, that's impossible. How can you get inside people's brains to figure out what they really want? Well, this is exactly what we've been doing for decades. This is usability research. How do we do that? We bring people into our lab. We show them the, 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 the design. We show them the, 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 the user interaction. And we ask them at the end of that interaction, look, this is what would happen along your journey, along using our product. Here's what would happen. And we have to disclose to them everything that we know. Okay, so whatever that potentially shady practice might be, whether it's, uh, the, you know, there's lots of dark patterns out there, no matter what it is, if we disclose to a representative sample of users, we bring in 10 people who are representative of our user base, and we have some kind of ethical bar. And we say, look, we won't use a design pattern unless 10 out of 10 people say that this passes the regret test. And if one out of those 10 says, you know what, I would not use this product knowing what you've just told me, well, then we fail. This is a very simple and cheap way. I mean, it only takes bringing 10 users into your, into your office. And we do this all the time, right? People in the UX industry, we do this all the time. Designers have, do usability testing every single day. So when, an, uh, when an, a potentially unethical design pattern is proposed, we raise our hands in that meeting and we tell the boss, hey boss, I think that's an interesting idea. How about we run a regret test? Not that's a terrible idea, not uh, that will never work, but can we run a regret test? And the incentive to run the regret test is if we don't know now that people regret using our product, we will have much worse consequences later on when people, not only will they tell us that they're never gonna use our product, they regret doing business with us, they're gonna tell all their friends about it. And so we see when dark patterns are used, generally the vast majority of times, People get called out. The companies who try using these unethical business practices, uh, they, they, they get skewered in, on social media and people never want to do business with them. So it's much cheaper to run that regret test now and know whether people will regret doing business with you than waiting till it's out there in the wild and getting the public backlash uh, against your, your product. The, the, the other thing that's really nice about this is that when you start doing these regret tests, even just proposing one, can have a chilling effect. So when someone raises their hand in a meeting and says, you know, I really think we should run a regret test on that, it turns out that that, that can actually prevent people from even trying these tactics, right? When the boss says, ooh, that's a good point. You know, I wonder if this would back, the, if this would pass the regret test. By, by even proposing it, it can have a chilling effect. And most of the time, you don't even have to run the actual test. You just kill the idea in the meeting. Yeah, because, you know, I, I do believe that people are, at the end of the day, good at heart, right? And nobody wants to do something that's going to, to mess up with other people. So once you, you just bring it up in a meeting, let's say that we're creating a new feature, we're working in a product team, and someone brings up the, the fact that it might be a dark pattern and people might regret for using this feature, people in that team might be more aware to the fact that dark pattern and we shouldn't use it because this is bad for business. I like it. And, and also, I think that this podcast is for writers in tech. I'm promoting the idea of UX writing and the fact that, you know, product teams should hire more writers. And one of the ideas that I'm trying to promote is the fact that you talked about legal, right? So nobody reads it. I also think that uh, the UX writers should go pick with the legal department and try to simplify and to understand like the essence of 
the, of legal and just if there is a very important message that needs to be delivered in the right time, the right moment, so they would just simplify it in a small piece of microcopy. Yeah, or, or, or even making it clear to the user themselves uh, that, that you know, maybe one of the best ways to do this is to assume that the user doesn't know and will never know unless they're pissed off about it. <laughs> And so that what the regret test does by bringing in a representative sample and asking them whether they would be okay with it, that can actually save us a lot of headache and heartache because, you know, people don't like to read at the end of the day, unfortunately, they, they don't want to spend time reading about this kind of stuff. So assume they don't know, and then you surprise them later on and said, oh yeah, this is actually what happened. What would happen? Would they be pissed off? Would they regret doing business with you? And if the answer is yes, you have to assume that's going to happen at one point. Uh, even even with the best writing, even with the best copywriting, even with the best terms of service, you know, I've seen I've seen some beautiful work in terms of of making terms of service that people can actually understand, and even the best well written, you know, the 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 kind that's written in in plain English, uh, still people generally will not read, unfortunately. What will be? And by the way, I'm really pissed uh, about the the manipulations of uh, low cost uh, airline companies. Those usually have the worst kind of dark patterns. They have. Uh, I really regret using their services because mm -hmm. I don't think that they're being straightforward and yeah. honest about things. Like you pick a seat and then they charge you for like six more bucks or something. Like yeah, that. yeah. Definitely understand what you're saying when. You're talking about like regretting using some kind of a service because of them being shady about many things. Yeah, yeah, and and we see that now these companies have a reputation. I mean, they used to do even worse, right? They used to do um, the the dark pattern, um, dark pattern where they would uh, a basket stuffing. That's what it is, where uh, you would check out and they would make it really difficult to understand that you'd bought a product you didn't need to buy. Right. Uh, so you know, taxes you have to pay, but they made it look like travel insurance was something you had to pay, you had to buy in your basket, uh, even though it was optional. And by and large, they don't do that anymore. I mean, that's, I, I haven't heard of anybody doing that in a long time. But for a while, a lot of the low cost airlines did do that. And then they got shamed uh, publicly into not doing that anymore. And now, you know, most of them don't do that anymore. At least I haven't heard of anyone doing it still. Um, so, you know, th typically, the market does work out this kind of stuff. But where it doesn't work out that kind of stuff, then people tend to adapt their behaviors. They say, Oh, if you buy on the low cost airline, know in advance, it's going to cost you an extra 30 bucks. It always does because they charge for every little thing. Whereas if you buy with a major carrier, that's bundled in. Um, so, so typically people learn and adapt to that kind of behavior. But you're right. You know, if, if, if you have a, ba a bad brand because you have this reputation of nickel and diming and tricking people into, into doing something they don't want to do. Uh, well, then you're not going to be in business all that long. Do you think that designing a digital experience should be licensed? Like people should have license to do that kind of stuff? You know, I think, I think that it, that's a tricky one. You know, licensing uh, oftentimes is used to keep a monopoly for a service that doesn't necessarily need to be a monopoly. So, for example, the best example in the United States, I don't know what the laws are internationally, but in the United States, you have to have a pretty extensive license uh, to be a, a, a barber, to cut someone's hair, you need to have a pretty extensive license. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I don't know. Is that, is that not That's, the case in Israel? <laughs> I think that everybody in Israel, including me, can cut hair whenever they want. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> so in the United States, that's not the case. And you I have hope to go... that no one will, will uh, ask me to cut their hair because uh, <laughs> it's not going to look I, pretty. <laughs> okay. So in the United States, in order to have a business and, and do this, uh, you have to go through a pretty extensive, you, know, you have to go to cosmetic school and you have to get your license. And the real reason for this is not that you know people can't 
cut hair and you can learn how to cut hair on YouTube, I would argue. Uh, the, the, the reason this is generally done is because people who cut hair want the monopoly. They, they, they want to exclude people so that prices can stay high. And so if, if that's the reason we want to give people an, an official designation as designers, well, then I wouldn't be for it. I think that's going to prevent good people from entering uh, the field. If, however, we, we, you know, people choose on their own to take some kind of certification, uh, to be a certified behavioral designer, that's something I'm working on, a curriculum around you know, being a certified behavioral designer and having an ethical uh, part of the uh, an ethics component as part of the the curriculum, I think that's probably the better way to go. That it becomes an optional designation that makes you more marketable uh, to a potential employer, knowing that you have this base curriculum. Right. I also believe in the fact that uh, about licensing, I don't have uh, an a solid idea yet uh, because I don't know if we look on doctors and lawyers, you probably would like to use the the. I wouldn't go to an unlicensed doctor, for example. Sure, because the consequences are pretty dire, right? Like if, if we didn't license doctors, then anyone could start doing surgery and, and that could be pretty disastrous. What's the disaster that would happen if someone was an unlicensed barber? Well, maybe a first few people would get a bad haircut, but you wouldn't go back to the barber anymore, right? You would, you would, that already happens, right? There are already barbers that are licensed and are really bad at cutting hair. Well, what do you do? You don't go back to them. Right, but maybe unlicensed UX designer can create something that will cause mental health or death, even at some point. You know. Yeah. Do you do you have you ever heard of such a thing? I I I find it hard to to believe that a single designer can work on their own and and design something that has catastrophic consequences that somehow licensing people would prevent. I've heard about a case study in. Uh, that they were asked to design some kind of a database of immigrants in, uh, and it was unethical. So the, the workers of actually stood out against this decision because it was very unethical. I definitely can say that uh, designers can cause death um, in specific design projects. Yeah, so I think that's probably the realm of making certain uh, behavior, certain business practices illegal. I don't know that's, if that's at the designer level or is it at the, the business level. I mean, clearly there's lots of things that companies aren't allowed to do. You can't, you know, dump raw sewage into the street. You can't, you know, put garbage everywhere. There are laws against all kinds of things that are harmful to society. Uh, but that's why we have laws that prevent those things. I don't, I don't think a designer certification uh, would, would prevent that. <laughs> I think it's probably about making certain things, un, uh, certain things illegal. And I think we see that already happening. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a tricky debate, right? There are many technologies that have potentially adverse consequences, but also a lot of potential good consequences. So I think we're having this debate right now in terms of facial recognition, for example, you know, San Francisco oh. outlawed it. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And in China, and, it's like the standard, right? And in China, it's the standard. And so we'll see, you know, does it reduce crime? I'm pretty sure it does, right? But does it also infringe on our privacy? Yeah. But that's, I don't think that's something that certifying, uh, I'm sorry, that I think uh, licensing designers would change. Uh, that's, 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 a, that's the kind of issue that I think needs to be dealt with at the, at the legislative level. Interesting. But, but I definitely agree that, uh, about the fact that every certified UX program out there needs to have some kind of chapter, unit, module about ethical design and about, about the fact that this topic should be discussed, right? It should definitely be discussed. I, I also don't think, though, that there's any easy answers. You know, I think when it comes to something, let, let's take facial recognition, for example. Mm -hmm. 
anyone who thinks this, this is an easy debate, I, I think is delusional. Um, or let's take, you know, let's take this issue. This is more uh, relevant in terms of, of, uh, of social media companies and designers. So recently, Facebook had this big controversy about political ads. Right. Uh, that they were not going to censor political ads. So if you run a political ad, you can essentially lie through an ad. Uh, Twitter said, okay, well, that's it. We're banning all ads, all political ads. No, sorry, not all ads. All political ads are gone from, from uh, Twitter. Well, it sounds like a nice solution, but it has some really bad consequences. For example, that means now that the Audubon Society can't run ads that groups that are trying to change people's behavior around uh environmental action well now that's considered political as well and for many people being able to reach an audience on twitter is imperative for their fundraising efforts for their ability to get out their message uh, they can't buy you know the audubon society can't buy you know multi-million dollar ads on television buying ads on twitter for a few thousand dollars to reach out to potential donors is is their lifeblood in many ways uh, for small organizations so there's always these unintended consequences we have to be very careful around. Um, and, and, and that's not something I think that it is a designer level decision. I think it's, uh, it's an executive level decision. It's a society level, de level decision. And even then, I think we're gonna, what we're going to see over the next few years is a bunch of mistakes because these questions are not so easily made uh, or, or answered, I should say, that legislators are going to screw up, right? They're going to say, oh, let's ban this, let's ban that. And they're going to overreach and we're going to regret that so many things were legislated away. Uh, and then the opposite will occur. There will be, there will be mistakes, there will be mess ups, and we'll say, oh boy, that was, that was a disaster. I wish we would have taken action earlier. But this is the, this is the story of progress. Uh, this is nothing new. That you know, what we do in terms of technological progress is we, we do what's called stumbling through. That we, the path towards technological innovation, and, and we all know the importance of technological innovation, that when we look at what has raised our standard of living, what has, has brought the majority of mankind out of abject poverty for the first time in our 200,000 years of, of existence, this is the first time in human history, just the last few generations, when the majority of people are not living hand to mouth. I mean, that, that's amazing. And that was only done through technological innovation, through the green revolution, uh, through, through, through industrialization, through this is how we have today higher standards of living. And we should be thanking our, our lucky stars that we are born today uh, with this standard of living as opposed to 100, 200 years ago. Life for most people on earth was really brutal and hard. And today it's getting better and better and better. There's, if you don't believe me, I know many people think this is the worst time in history. Uh, you're just not educated if you believe that. And so I think what, you sh what, what I recommend folks is to read, there's a great book called Factfulness uh, by Hans Ronsling, which will blow your mind. Most people don't realize how much better the world has gotten. And the credit should be given to, to technological innovation. This is what propels our species forward. And so we have to perpetuate that. We have to make sure that now every person on the face of the earth has access to education, to clean water, to uh, democratic systems of government, to, uh, to all the benefits that come with, with the, the innovation and the surplus that we have today in resources that, that are available to us. I mean, this, this is our salvation. If we want to fix the environment, we have to make better technology that, that, that cleans up the environment and prevents pollution in the future. And so what we want to make sure we do is we don't stifle innovation that comes part and parcel with this curse of negative consequences. And, you know, Paul Virilio said it best when he said that when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. 
And, and that's part of technological innovation that, that things, there, there are screw ups, right? And, and uh, the solution to those screw ups is not to stop using the technology, right? When was the last time you heard about a real shipwreck? Almost never. It used to be very common. Ships would crash all the time and people would die aboard these ships that would sink. It happened all the time. When was the last time you heard about a shipwreck? Almost never. It almost never happens. Well, did we stop sailing ships? Of course not. We made ships better. And that's exactly what's going to happen with these digital technologies. We're still in the infancy stage, right? These companies are teenagers, right? They've only been around for a few years. And so, of course, there's going to be all kinds of negative consequences that were unforeseen. Uh, I guarantee you Zuckerberg had no idea that his product that he started in his dorm room would have an effect on, on future elections. No way he could have conceived that. And uh, these are, people, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. 2 billion people using the product. There's going to be some, some negative consequences. So the solution is to make it better. And so we need people not to run away from the tech industry. That's what scares me around the current tech lash is that we have, moved from skepticism, which I think is a very healthy Silicon Valley trait. We, we want to be skeptical. And I think now we've moved into cynical, that now we are so cynical about, about these companies that they can do nothing right, even when they are spending billions of dollars and doing as much as they possibly can, I think. I mean, they could always do more, I suppose, but they are doing a lot. You have to give them credit where credit is due. They are doing a lot to try and fix some of these problems. And so we want to we want to encourage people to go work for these companies, to make them better, to get on the inside so that you can fix some of the, the, the problems caused by these technologies or, you know, build a technology that makes the, the, the current technology obsolete. So, for example, I invest in companies that I want to replace Facebook. For example, I invested in Marco Polo. It's this wonderful social media company mm-hmm. that does away with a lot of the crap, a lot of the, the problems with a, a product like Facebook. Uh, they respect user privacy. It's not an ad-driven business. It actually has been shown in third-party studies to increase well-being. And can, through, this, through this app, it actually increases well-being much more than, than a product like Facebook might. And so we want new technologies to replace the bad aspects of the last generation of technology. And the only way to do that is to get more people to enter the field, not to have people say, oh, that those technologies, they're all evil, mind-controlling products. There's, no, you know, there's nothing good about them. That's not going to fix the problem. Uh, we, we need more people to be in the industry to fix these, these issues. That's amazing. I'm just looking on Marco Polo, too. It looks pretty... It's amazing. I love the, the idea of, you know, fixing the industry from the inside and understand that companies are still in their teenage years. So it's better to have charity to understand that unethical things might occur, but being conscious about it and fix it from the inside. And if we can fix it from the inside, invent something better. I love it. Right, right. Amazing. Is there any other cool uh, technologies uh, that you recommend to follow that you think that like will help us with our uh, daily lives in the future? Well, I, I'm pretty bullish on various forms of, of health tech. I think there's going to be a lot uh, that comes out of that field. I think we, we had a, a crash in the market, which, which is a, typically a signal of uh, good things to come. So, you know, if you're familiar with the Gartner hype cycle, there's always this inflection point where everybody gets super excited about a technology. And then there's what's called the trough of disillusionment where there's a crash and people say, oh, that technology is never going to work. Uh, it's silly. Uh, and then, then from there, that's where you get the real progress. So it's kind of like, a, you know, you get like a spike and then you get a, a, a crash. And then from there, you get steady, 
continued upward momentum and progress. And this is, of course, what happened around the 2000s when people said, oh, you know, pets.com, how ridiculous is that? You know, back in 2000, the, the, when yeah. the stock market, when the tech bubble burst, oh, but my gosh, people just wrote off the entire internet and thought it's never going to become anything. Well, look what we have today. You know, it turns out pets.com wasn't a bad business. It was just early. Today we call it Chewy and Amazon and all these other <laughs> products that actually have borne fruit. Uh, you know, I remember Cosmo, was it Cosmo.com where they would deliver, uh, you know, ice cream to your door and people thought it was so ridiculous and they blew billions of dollars and Webvan. Whoa, my God, so stupid. Who would invest in Webvan? Well, now we have billion-dollar companies like DoorDash that pretty much do the same thing. <laughs> they were just early, and, and the, the, the underlying technology hadn't cut off back when we were using Dialove. Now that we have high-speed, those products, and mobile, uh, now those products can come to fruition. And so I think that I think we're going to see something similar when it comes to personal health tech. So right now I'm wearing actually three different biometric devices. I'm constantly testing oh, different well. devices. Uh, and I think that there could be a lot of promise in this area when it comes to uh, how do we get better sleep? How do we personalize nutrition? Uh, how do we make personalized forward-looking recommendations around uh, exercise and you know, various things that, that we can do? I think right now the problem with the industry has been that everything is a lagging indicator. So what bothers me a lot about the, the health tech industry today is that you, know, you, you get home from work and it says, hey, you only walked you know, 5,000 steps, go out and do 5,000 more steps. Well, it's too late, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I don't have time for that. It's, it's already evening. I want to go to sleep. Whereas I think what we're going to see in the future is you're going to have more predictive technology that will, that will say, I looked at your calendar. If you're going to walk, now's the time. Uh, here's the route. Here's exactly what to do and when to do it. And it's going to be much more like a, like a life coach uh, as opposed to something that nags you into feeling guilty. It's going to some, be something that makes you feel good and empowers you. Amazing. And the people, by the way, that are going to write those interactions are going to be people that will understand the technology and the product, and then will understand exactly how, like, they will understand exactly how to create those predictions. And by the way, that's what I believe that UX writers are going to, to do in the future, to create those everyday interactions with maybe healthcare products or even IoT, like the internet around us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel like uh, there's going to be a great opportunity in that field as well for writers as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think I think writing is is really an undervalued skill uh, because you know people who can write clearly can think clearly. It's a demonstration of your ability to think in a logical fashion and um it's it's a skill that i think everyone needs to develop and and you see this bearing fruit you know at i love what they do at amazon i talk about this a little bit in my book indistractable around how to hack back meetings where uh you know so many you know we, when we think about distractions at work we think about the the iphone we think about slack we think about our computers these type of technologies distracting us i would argue one of the biggest sources of distraction in the workforce today is stupid meetings, right? How many dumb meetings do we have that we don't need to have? And so what they do at Amazon is brilliant where, you know, they, they don't have slide presentations. They have a briefing document where if you're going to call a meeting, the person who calls the meeting needs to do their homework, spend some time thinking first, present a briefing document, a, multi, you know, a, a, a few pages that shows that they've thought about the problem. Here's their recommendation. Everybody comes to the meeting. The first thing they do is they read the document uh, that shows that the person did their homework and provides the recommendation. And then they have a discussion around it to gain consensus for that meeting. As opposed to in most, most companies, let's face it, the reason we have meetings at most companies 
is because somebody needs their ego uh, catered to. They need to hear themselves think out loud. <laughs> and so everybody right. just sits there listening or putzing around on their phones as opposed to being fully present and actually doing something in the meeting where we call the meeting just so that the big boss can feel important uh, as opposed to when, when you have this practice of writing out this briefing document. Uh, it's, it's a much more effective and healthy manner to have these meetings. And the interesting thing is when you put that bit of friction when you require people to put that bit of homework to say, look, if you're going to call the meeting, first you have to do some homework to warrant people's time to actually spend time in this meeting, write that briefing document. You know, it's such a great tool for us as designers to think through logically what we, what we believe in, right? What we think we should do next, as opposed to just going with our gut. Writing is such a powerful way to think, it, you know, being, being the kind of person who can write out your thoughts and, and digest your thoughts on the page, it's, it's such an underappreciated tool I think everyone should do more of. Right. There is a really cool book uh, by Scott Kuby called uh, uh, Writing for Designers. I think that's the name. I hope I didn't get it wrong. I think he was the one that said that everyone can, every person that can speak can actually write. And uh, this is something that we should definitely like practice small and uh, yeah everyone can write and I think that we should do more of it and uh, I think that the way we're communicating the digital experiences around us is also super important and uh, um, also the fact that we need to um, write not only the digital interface but also meeting uh, expectations like they're doing Amazon uh, and also communicating with your team members and yes I definitely agree. Writing is very, very, very important. So we're about to finish the interview. My last question is, what do you think that uh, the future will look like for uh, conversational designers, like people that create interactions uh, based on language with digital interfaces? Where do you see this industry is heading? Yeah, yeah. I, I still think there's a bright future. I think that there's um, a, a problem that we haven't been able to solve uh, with conversational UI in, in that if you look at the hook model that I talk about in my first book, you have these four basic steps of a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. And I think the part that's missing for most conversational interfaces today is the external trigger. Meaning, you know, when, when you use some, some kind of interface that has a screen, there is a very clear external trigger. There's a ping, a ding, a ring, something that tells you what to do next. And where I think the, the conversational UI is stunted today is that for, for many interactions, when you think about the Amazon Alexa or Microsoft Cortano or uh, even, even uh, the iPhone Siri, you, you have this problem in that people don't remember to ask because there's no external trigger. So you're relying 100% on the internal trigger, the, the association, the memory to say, oh, when I need this, I need to ask for that. That, that doesn't happen in most people until you have a few cycles through the hook prompted from an external trigger. So for example, on the phone, Facebook habituated us to check the phone because we, they, they sent us all of these notifications until eventually we didn't need them anymore. And the, the behavior was prompted solely from the internal trigger. But with the, with the voice interface, that's very hard to do because there are no external triggers. Uh, Alexa doesn't reach out to us uh, spontaneously and say, Hey, would you like to know such and such? Right. And people probably wouldn't like that. I guess. Yes. But I predict it's going to happen. It's, I think it's inevitable. There will be use cases where 
Alexa does proactively reach out to you and say, hey, would you like this? Would you like that? Before you even remember to ask to get you into the habit of remembering that you can ask. I mean, I think you, you see this huge problem with the, the Amazon skills uh, a store where there's thousands of Alexa skills that nobody has ever used or very, very few people actually use because they don't remember to ask for the skills. They haven't formed the habit. And so this is something I predicted five years ago that as the interface shrinks, as we go from desktop to laptop to mobile devices and now wearable devices and now to auditory devices where the screen has completely disappeared, habits become increasingly important because there's no place to externally trigger people. You have to get them to remember to use your product or your product doesn't even exist. Uh, and so you see that today on the, on the cell phone. You know, if you're not on the home screen, people are going to forget your app is even there. <laughs> and that's even more important when it comes to the auditory interface. Uh, because again, you know, if you don't remember to ask for a particular skill on one of these devices or remember that your phone can do something just by asking for it with your voice, then all that amazing technology is wasted because people don't even remember to ask for it in the first place. So that's going to be the big challenge is how do you insert external triggers that are welcome, that are appreciated by the user, that scratch the user's itch to get them into the habit of knowing that that skill even exists. That's a really good point. And my prediction that, you know, visual screens are not going, would not go away. And I think that there's going to be some kind of a combination between what we see and what we hear. And maybe, maybe in the far future, we're going to have like those, uh, how do you call it? Like AR, MR, all of those uh, augmented reality stuff, but I really don't know hmm. exactly if it, it is going to work or not. Many people predicted it is going to work. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm sure we'll figure it out. <laughs> I, uh, it's just, just a matter That's of time, I'm sure. Yeah. That's, our <laughs> That's our job, exactly. That's our opportunity. Nirayal, thank you so much for coming today. My pleasure, uh, Yuval. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I can't wait uh, to publish this episode. I'm sure that many people are going to love listening to us speak about uh, all of those interesting topics. Um, that's about it. People uh, would love to reach out to you after this episode. What would be the best way to, to find you online? Sure. So they can go to nearandfar.com. That's my website, but near is spelled like my first name. So it's nirandfar.com, nearandfar.com. And if you want specific information about Indistractable, my new book, you can go to indistractable.com. That's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com. And there is actually an 80-page workbook that's completely complimentary. You can get that at indistractable.com. And if you do end up buying the book, special note, make sure you keep your order number. It doesn't matter where you buy it from. If you buy it at a local bookseller, just keep your receipt. Or uh, if you buy it on Amazon, keep your order number. If you enter in that order number at indistractable.com, you'll actually get access to a video course that's also free if you get the book. So make sure you go nice. check that out at indistractable.com. Even if I got it as an Audible? Uh... Yes, yes, oh, really? same with Audible. Yep, Any, anywhere that gives you an order number, you can enter that in. All right, so I got it on Audible, so check it out as well. I also recommend, by the way, to check the newsletter that you have on your website. I get it, and uh, it's pretty cool. Like, uh, great resources. Thank you so much. Cool. So thank you, Nirayal. Have a great day. I appreciate it. Thanks. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to Writers in Tech. If you like our podcast, then leave us a rating and subscribe so you're updated when a new show comes out. For more UX writing goodies, sign up for our UX writing newsletter at uxwritinghub.com. Thanks again, and that's all for this week.